All right, you guys, welcome back to another episode of Return. Uh, we have been a little occupado the last few weeks. That means occupied. No, it oh, means busy. It means occupied. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, we were on a little bit of a family vacation. Uh, one week we went to Washington D.C., which was a really good time, and then this past week we were actually involved in an end time symposium in which... Excellent, by the way. Yeah, it was excellent. We loved it. It was hosted um, by the Center for Biblical End Time Studies uh, here in Kansas City. And we uh, brought in different speakers, different doctors. Um, You know, all of them have their degree in, in theology and in different majors. And it was very interesting because we were able to hear from a lot of different viewpoints of the end times, which is what we want to talk about today. We kind of got some inspiration, realized that we never have really brought clear definition to some of the different viewpoints of the end times. And so that's what we want to talk about today. We'll kind of go through some of the different terms and views. We will um, list some of the strengths of those views, some of the weaknesses of the views, and then we're going to give you uh, what our view is and and why, obviously, we believe the viewpoint that we believe. So lots to get into today, and let's jump right in. Let's do it. Okay, so... To start, I don't want to spend the bulk of our time on on these aspects, but I feel like these are worth noting and bringing some definition to because they really do have an impact on um, the way that we view the millennial kingdom, which is what I want to spend the most of our time looking at today. But uh, just to start, there are different ways that... Um, theologians and and people have viewed specifically the book of Revelation. And um, a lot of this has to do with how you would date uh, things written about in the book of Revelation, how you would date, actually more than just Revelation, how you would date events that are talked about in the end time narrative. So um, a major one being uh AD 70, where, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem happened, the destruction of the temple. um, And there's a lot of things surrounding the end times that involve a temple. For example, um, there, the Bible talks about there being, you know, morning and evening sacrifices uh, happening in the context of a lot of uh, apocalyptic events. There's Things related to the Antichrist needs to set himself up in the temple to proclaim himself as God. But obviously, if there's no temple uh, currently, this makes it difficult for, uh, you know, a futurist viewpoint. So those are kind of, I want to just briefly go through some of the different uh, ways that people view some timing indicators in Uh, the book of Revelation and in the end times. And then we're going to jump more into the bulk of the conversation for today, which is the different viewpoints on the millennium. Okay, so just to start, there are four main 
different views on the end times, and I'm going to list these pretty quick. First, there's the historicist, which approaches the book of Revelation as a pre-written record of the course of history from the time of the apostle to the end of the world. So meaning fulfillment is considered to be in progress, in present, and it's been unfolding for nearly 2,000 years. That's how they would see the book of Revelation. We're we're at some point in the book of Revelation currently. Yeah. Which I would like that we make a, one comment on each one. I think there's permission in the Bible a little bit to see the progression of the gospel, obviously, and the progression of wickedness in the world. So that doesn't mean that that's the the right interpretation because it's not but the bible gives us permission to see a progression like the gospel is obviously more spread in the world two thousand years after the first outpouring of the holy spirit you know but that doesn't mean that we are the last church in the book of revelation like laodicea like right you know so they they tend to interpret every single progression in the bible as a literal progression of the last 2,000 years. Happening within a specific time period. Yeah, and, and I mean, who gets to be the judge of that? So that's that's not a right view um, yeah. of the Bible. But we we have permission to see a little bit of that in, in the progression of the gospel and wickedness. Just, yeah. I just want to make that comment. Okay, so the second one is preterist. And this is pretty popular. Um, the preterist approach sees the fulfillment of Revelation's prophecies as having already occurred in what is now in our time would be the ancient past. But from the time of the author's time, it would have been, you know, kind of in the immediate future. So the fulfillment of things uh, related to the end times was in the future from the viewpoint of the author, but in our past. And some preterists believe that the final chapters of Revelation look forward to the second coming of Christ. But there's, I think the majority of preterists would think that everything in the book of Revelation has reached its culmination in the past. Specifically, this is the view that holds very strongly to everything being fulfilled in AD 70. So therefore, uh, in the preterist view, there may not be um, another you know, big end time drama to take place. Most of the things that Jesus talked about, I mean, I think all of the things that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 uh, would have taken place in AD 70, the abomination of desolation, um, you know, the gospel being preached, stuff like that. And preterism has a pretty strong uh, footprint in the Western view of, of end times. So yeah. we'll probably touch on that a little bit more. Especially in the post-millennialism and the amillennialist. Uh, uh, the preterist, which is, I mean, that word comes from, you know, a, 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 a verbal time or verbal, I don't know. Like yeah, oral, blah, blah, blah. an oral culture? No, 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 no. It's a preterist means that it's, it's a... ¿Cómo se dice tiempo en el pasado? Pastime. Pastime phrase or pastime? Oh, oh, um. Yeah, uh, oh gosh. Babe, it's your language. I know. (laughs) I know how to say in Spanish, but it's future, past, past progressive. How do you call that? How do you call, I know it's past, but how do you call that? Future, past, uh, what? Um. Uh, A time? Come on, babe. (laughs) 
progressive tense tense? yeah past tense past tense okay and preterist comes from a past tense so means it's it's one of it's uh no it's not a past tense It's important because then people are going to say, is that a theological term? It's not. Ah, whatever. Yeah. Just erase everything I said. Okay. No, because you were going to comment on preterism. Yeah, but if we don't have the word, then it makes no sense my comment. You said it well. I, I I just wanted to make sense of the word that is easy to remember. Okay. Okay, and so the next one would be the futurist approach, which would look at the Book of Revelation as having future fulfillment. So think these things haven't been fulfilled yet. Um, futurist interpreters usually apply everything after chapter four in the book of revelation to a brief period before the return of Christ. And just for your sake, our sake, I'll just mention that this is the viewpoint that we hold to. We believe that, um, the prophecies in the book of revelation are yet to happen in the future. And then lastly, there's a spiritual or it's also called an idealist or symbolic approach to the book of Revelation, which doesn't attempt to find individual fulfillments of the visions, but it takes the book of Revelation to be a great drama depicting transcendent spiritual realities, such as the conflict between Christ and Satan or between the saints and the, and the Antichrist or, or anti-Christian world powers. And then a final vindication of Christ and the saints. And so some uh, a lot of the book of Revelation is just taking completely spiritually and, and almost like as an allegory for how the church uh, and, and, and the, the age that we're in, so to speak, is being lived out or expressed. So that's the spiritual point of view. So just wanted to give... Brief definition to those because you'll find that they impact, uh, obviously, the way that the different views on the millennium take place. Okay, and so before we jump into talking about the millennium, I think uh, for those who don't know, Revelation 20, basically the whole chapter because it's it's listed in uh, the majority of the verses in Revelation 20, talk about this thousand year period, which is where we get the word millennium. Um, mille is, is Greek and it means 1000. And so, and then annum is years. So it's 1000 years. So the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign. And then at the same time, we see from Revelation 20 that during this 1000 years, Uh, It says Christ is going to reign on the earth. And then it says that the saints will reign with him. But during that 1000 year reign of Christ, Satan is bound in a prison. And, um, and at the end of the thousand years, it says that Satan is released for a short period of time to again, try to deceive the nations. And then he receives final judgment. And at the, at that time, after Satan receives final judgment would be, when we enter into eternity. 
So we are going to list out some of the different viewpoints on how people see the millennial kingdom. And then we'll kind of list a few strengths and, and weaknesses maybe of of each one. Do you want to start with the amillennial view of the kingdom? Let's go for it. You want to introduce it? Yes, my favorite. I'm just kidding. No, it's, it's because we have, um, we've been actually this week talking about this position and uh, with an open heart, with open eyes in the scriptures. And personally, that's the one that I disagree the most with because it has so many layers of error in my opinion. But I'm going to, I'm going to lay it out in a few words. So I'm lineal-ist. Um, they believe that the millennial kingdom is symbolic, meaning it doesn't really mean a thousand years. And they believe that, uh, since the outpouring of the Holy spirit, the millennial is the millennial kingdom is in us is the kingdom. Now, like we are living the millennial kingdom and it's something that is not substantial, like physical, but it's something that is internal and symbolic. And let's start with the strength. Uh, one of the strengths, it has several strengths, but one of the, them is that they emphasize the victory of the cross and the Holy Spirit in our hearts against sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Colossians 3, when it says that Jesus, you know, exposed the principalities and powers in the, in the cross and gave us victory. And now, Romans 8, we have victory over the flesh, all of that stuff. So it's, it's amazing on that regards and they have that emphasis and it's beautiful and it's true. The problem, which is, uh, which is the, the symbolic part is that there's no unity among them because every single preacher, every single teacher, every single scholar that is an amillennial takes every single chapter of the Bible as symbolic. So that means that there's a billion different interpretations of every verse. And there's no consistency in the way that they interpret the Bible, meaning sometimes Isaiah 61, the first three verses, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because uh, he has anointed me to preach the good news, to open the all of that stuff that Jesus quoted in, in Luke 4, 18. They take it as literal, and the first coming of Jesus was literal. But then the rest of the chapter about the vengeance of the Lord, the you know, the coming of the Lord and the restoration of Israel and Zion and Jerusalem physically. It's all symbolic. It's not symbolic. It's like, so who gave you permission to change all of a sudden? And some people take 50% symbolic, other 25%. So there's no unity because it's all in speculation uh, uh, according to what you believe is symbolic or not. And that's, I think that's the biggest weakness. And that's why I cannot, I cannot take it. Because we have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And, they, and to read things at face value, too. Exactly. So they one of the phrases they have, which sounds good, but it's not, it's not good, is um, that we need to interpret all the Old Testament with a couple of chapters, like Galatians 3 and, and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 2, meaning that we reread and redefine the Old Testament with three chapters of the New Testament. And that's the old, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the gospel, but it's not the way to interpret the, the Old Testament. 
So, anyways, that uh, that's there's so many weaknesses, and one of the big ones is that they have they, even though they don't accept it, many times they have a replacement theology, which yeah, means that's that, a big one. which means that. We are Israel. We replace Israel. We are now the spiritual Israel. And the promises of Israel, of the land of Israel, Jerusalem, the restoration and the bringing, the gathering of the Jewish people in the last 40 years, it means nothing to them. So um, there's not a national corporate promise that is still standing for Israel. And and the difficult thing is, is we've talked with some people who hold to the amillennial view and they will say, oh no, like Israel does still hold to the promises of God. We're not replacement theology. It's just that it gets fulfilled in individuals. So if a Jewish person comes to believe that Jesus is Messiah, then all of a sudden that's they're, they're walking in the promises. And it's funny because we've even heard um, them use language like, they've been regrafted into the olive tree stuff like that and yeah. and meaning there's not this corporate promise left for Israel and i'll just say that that presents it it, it seems innocent or it seems nice but it pre- it presents quite a few dangers actually because historically christians have been some of the main persecutors of jews through like through the last 2000 years and it's because of replacement theology and so by taking away the corporate promises we are making void a massive chunk of the old testament and there is so many verses on promises related to the land specifically um I liked some points that we heard this past weekend of even how, you know, Joseph and and Jacob, it was such a big deal for them, for their bones to be brought from Egypt back to the land because there are promises uh, specifically pertaining to the land of Israel. And I mean, there's a trillion verses that we could go through that talks about that. Hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. And so that is a massive weakness is that, um, you can't, in my opinion, no matter how you square it, you cannot be all millennial and not hold to at least a version of replacement theology. And, and that is just very dangerous knowing that what we do see in scripture related to another Jacob's trouble that is going to come to the Jewish people, what we see in Revelation, even that the dragon tries to make war against the woman uh, uh, Israel. And when he can't make war against Israel, it co- he comes after the offspring that hold to the testimony of Jesus, which is Christians as well. But we see so clearly in Revelation that there is a persecution, both of Jews and Christians. And then we know throughout all, I mean, tons of passages in Isaiah in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there are prophetic, uh, prophetic promises related to an end time trial and persecution for Israel and to just symbolize all of that gets really dangerous. So that is a a massive weakness. I want to add another strength and it kind of ties into the strength that you were listing Benji, which, which is, uh, it puts a lot of victory on the cross, but I also want to say it's very, this view is very Christocentric. So it's not just Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus as a person that the revelation of God climax 
climaxes in the person of Christ. But every view has that. Yes, we're this one just... It as a strength, but it doesn't mean that all the other views doesn't happen. Yeah, that's true. But this one just overly emphasizes that. And so I do think that that can be a good thing, obviously. It is. Um, we I'm, should all have it. Yeah, I'm going to go with another weakness because, I mean, this again taps into everything is kind of symbolic. But this one, I'm like, no matter how you cut it, I don't see how you can get around this. And that is that Satan is bound right now, according to the amillennial view. Because what we see in Revelation 20 is that for a thousand years, Satan is going to be bound and he's only going to be let out of prison uh, to deceive the nations uh, and and bring them to fight against Jesus. And so the amillennial position is that Satan has been bound and thrown in prison since the cross. And no matter how you cut it, I'm like, I do not see how that is possible. Not just because there are Bible verses that clearly talk about how the earth is still under the sway and the dominion of the evil one. That our, that our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but it's about against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. Not only are there Bible verses that talk against that, it's like, you can just reference the terrible day that you had yesterday and the sin and the wickedness that you're seeing happen in the news and the earth and all that stuff to know that Satan is not bound. We are clearly, there There clearly is a lot of uh, demonic and, and gross darkness and wickedness happening right now because of Satan. <laughs> Unless, and, and also reference by uh, Bible like Paul. Ephesians 6, 10 to 14, he's saying that our battle is with this, with Satan in the heavenly places. First John chapter 4 and 5 talks about that all the earth is under the dominion of the evil one, the prince of the earth. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 4 to 6 talks about, Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of this generation, of every generation so they don't see the glory of Christ that is uh, portrayed in the face of Jesus. So that is post-Holy Spirit, post-cross. you know, um, cross. That is Paul, the, uh, the master builder of the church that went up to heaven. That, and he's telling us that we are to suffer because Satan is not bound. Because he still is in, um, he has the dominion of the earth. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that there's still a battle that has to happen for Satan to be cast down from heaven. So no matter how you see it, you will have to twist over and over and over again with different definitions and interpretation to hold on to that. And yeah. the importance of that is that they you, they say that Satan is bound because then that's the only thing they have an argument to have to make Revelation 20 symbolic. Right. That is already happening because in Revelation 20 says that in the beginning of the millennial kingdom, Satan has to be bound and then released after a thousand years. So in order to make that symbolic, you have to be very strong saying, oh, Satan is already bound. But that is impossible. Yeah. It contradicts all the Bible. Yeah. Honestly, I could give so many more examples of 
of things that we've heard from all millennial uh, uh, people who hold to an all millennial view that, I mean, it kind of just makes you chuckle a little bit because it's, it it kind of is a bit crazy. I want to be very kind because also I will say this, those people love Jesus. They love Jesus. They, you know, it's, they want him to come back, all of that. But just this viewpoint is very inconsistent with what we see in the Bible. And so there's a lot of just wacky things that that are seen and, and talked about. But I want to kind of just as we wrap this up, I want to say this, that um, it's my observation. This might not be completely true or accurate, but it is my observation that because in the 80s, specifically the 80s, but 70s and 80s, the pre-trib view was so massive and that's you know we're gonna the church is gonna be raptured before the tribulation and then Jesus is gonna come back later after the tribulation to to get the rest of Israel whatever because that view was so big in the 70s what I kind of see happening is that that view is fading a bit more into the background and, and it's kind of dying off with the older generation that really held to that. But what I see is that the two primary views that are being held right now is amillennial and uh, pre, premillennial, which is a historic premillennialism. And those are the two main ones that I see are kind of going back and forth. And I do see that it's really, I, I believe that it is really important um, to, to get it yourself clear on these because they both have massive implications. And I think for the sake of time, what we'll do is we'll talk about the historic premillennial and, and the postmillennial view in the next episode, uh, so that you get a little bit more of that. But I just wanted to kind of put that out there that what I'm really observing right now is that the main two views that are being held are all millennial and, and then the, the premillennial and those kind of have a lot of implications. I'm kind of saying something without saying a lot behind it, but um, yeah. Yeah, we have we have energy. And again, I want to reemphasize what Gabe is saying. We're not saying that these people are dangerous. Yeah. We're saying that the doctrine will will lead the church into an error and disappointment and offense ultimately especially in the end times and you might be thinking ah who cares i just want to love jesus absolutely loving jesus is the number one we can have unity all around the world with that fact the authority of the bible jesus is god and all of that stuff but in this last generation we need to we need to pay attention to what jesus said we have to know we have to know the right verses. We, not, we, we need to know the right doctrine. We need to be very, very careful with what we believe because your eschatology will define the way you pray, the way you live, mm-hmm. and the way you are going to stand for Jesus and Israel when all the nations are hating on them. And that's going to that's gonna be the test. If you believe that Israel doesn't matter, then we're going to stand for Palestine. We're going to stand for anti-Semitism. We're going to start little by little. Our children are going to start standing uh, for the boycotting Israel, which that's what happened in the 1930s. 
97% of the population of America was in approval on the boycott in Germany of Nazi Germany against the Jews. Because, because of what? Because of this theology, because of this, well, Israel doesn't matter. And I'm talking about most of America, 97%, which is one of the Christian nations, right? Back in the day. So um, it does matter. It matters. Details matter. And God cares about details because he never wasted one word in the word. Yeah. Never. And if he gives us hundreds, yet thousands of verses that re-emphasize his promises for Israel, therefore his promises for us, then we have to care about that. As friends of the bridegroom, we need to care about Israel. We need to care about the details. I just want to say that. Yeah. All right, we're going to wrap this one up and we'll plan in the next episode to talk about the other viewpoints. I just want to say these are super easy when you get them. It just takes a few minutes, get the get the names stuck in your head, get like two or three bullet points of what each one believes. And once you have it, it helps a lot because that will really help you in your reading and your studying. And then when you come across other people who want to have conversations about this, you're you're going to be able to understand the basics and, and be able to navigate your way through those conversations. So I hope that this is helpful. And yeah, we'll talk about the other viewpoints in the next episode. Praise the Lord. See you guys later.